Uh, today is Advent, and it is hopeful, so hopefully this works. That was a dad joke. I'm sorry. Um, Advent. Now, Advent, the word means coming. It means arrival. And so when we celebrate Advent for the first four weeks leading up into Christmas, what we're doing is we're celebrating the fact that Jesus arrived into the world and that he is also arriving again into the world. He came once in a manger and then next he'll come in the clouds. Um, Advent is a season of anticipation. Now, we all anticipate things differently. My children understand anticipation, especially of Christmas, very well. Um, My wife and I figured out a great way to get our kids out of Target once we're in Target, and we always happen to go buy it. They put the toy section, like, right in the middle, so you have to go buy it to get out of the store. And the best way we could figure out to get out of the store without encouraging their sin was to say, go ahead and just put that on your Christmas list. And so the whole year, it's like, no, 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 January 1st, put it on your Christmas list. Like, we'll, we'll do that again, just put it on your Christmas list. And so all year, they anticipate Christmas because they know they will get gifts. They know that they will be blessed um, on Christmas with gifts. Now, historically, there is a ton we could get into about Christmas. Yeah, it might have used to have been pagan. Yes, it may have probably not been in December when Jesus was born. Okay, the trees might have been pagan. And putting fireballs on trees that light things on fire probably wasn't the best idea. Or the nativity. The magi weren't actually in the nativity, right? They, they came a couple years later. We all know people like this. Maybe you are people like that. Um, there's a lot of issues we could get into about Christmas. Santa, right? Santa isn't real. Or at least he used to be real. Or he died, as my mom told me when I was five. He was real, but he died a long time ago. And the same isn't Santa, it was St. Nicholas, pastor of Mira, and he punched a guy once at a heretic at a pastor's conference. So there's a lot we can get into about Christmas, right? The history of Christmas, should we celebrate, should we not? Is it too commercialized? Um, Should we really be buying things for people as gifts? There's a ton of things we could get into about Christmas. But what we want to talk about today is hope. The hope of Christmas. We're going to focus on hope. And as we see in the Old Testament, they were focused, um, not always, just like we are not always, but God gave them commands and prophecies about Christmas, if you establish Christmas as the coming of God into the world. The finite taking on, the infinite taking on a finite flesh. We celebrate Christmas because it is important. Because it is important to remember that God became one of us. He did not cease to be God, but he did become one of us. Today is an Old Testament Christmas hope, and we're in Jeremiah. So please stand for the reading of God's word in Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and in that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. These are the words of God, and you may sit down as we pray. Father God, you sent your Son into the world, and that matters. It does not matter if Santa was real. It does not matter how many cookies 
um, we should or should not make, or whether they have gluten or sugar-free frosting. It does not matter necessarily when you were born, just that you were born. And you are king, and we should order our lives by you. So today, Father, as we look into the word, I ask that you would open our hearts to hear what you would have us hear, to forget what you would have us to forget, and in all things that we may glorify you as our good God. Amen. Okay, so setting, can I bend over? Is that illegal? Um, Okay, so setting the stage. Jeremiah the prophet wrote these words in the Old Testament. He wrote what God told him to write. Now, in the time, Israel had been split into two kingdoms. Believe it or not, um, the believers back then got into a fight, right? Believers these days don't get into fights at all. Um, Believers back then got into fight, and it split. The kingdoms split. You had the north in Israel, and you had the south of Judah. Now, when Jeremiah is writing, the north had already been conquered. Uh, God had brought judgment upon them for their disobedience, and they had been conquered for almost about a hundred years before Jeremiah starts writing. Now, Jeremiah gets to witness God's judgment on his people, and he gets to preach to the kings of Judah. And he gets to tell them why God is doing this, why God's judgment is happening in this way. And God chose him to be what we commonly call the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was very sad about God's judgments. Now, a word about God's judgments. They are never bad. God does not do bad things. God's judgments are good. However, God's judgments are not always easy. God's judgments that he talks about in Jeremiah upon the people of Judah were good, but they were very hard for Israel. And they were meant as a good judgment of God to bring about Israel, Judah, the Jewish repentance and bringing back to God, to turn away from worshiping themselves and idols, and to turn back to their true king, um, Father God, the triune God, and to obey him. Now, we get to the point where Jeremiah is actually declaring something good that's about to happen, something helpful to them. And it's a judgment that is not nearly as hard as what they're currently going through. And there's maybe four or five of these in the whole book of Jeremiah, and they're very repetitive. All of them are about Jesus. And so he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You see, the problem was Judah and Israel thought God had abandoned them in their sin. They knew they had disobeyed, but they thought that God had abandoned them and left them to um, reap the benefits of their curses, to reap the curse that they had um, incurred upon themselves through their disobedience. Um, both, the, both the northern and southern kingdom were being absolutely demolished, desolated. They were were being brought to nothing. There were no beasts in the land, is how he describes it, which means there's no growth, there's no income, there's no family. Um, And so it seemed to get very hard, and they were beginning to lose hope that God had given them up, right, Romans, huh? Given them up to their sin. But yet he had not, and he, he reminds them of this, that he is a God who keeps his promise. And that's our first point today. God keeps his promises. Now, God specifically made this promise to the covenant people of Israel, of Judah, and he said he would fulfill it. Now, what was this promise? Well, I'm going to read like five or six verses. By the way, there are a lot of Bible verses today. So if you are a uh, book guy, you're going to be flipping. So I may just recommend you bust out your phone so you can go back and forth. It might be quicker. Um, 
So what is this promise? He says, I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and we and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Again in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, through you are small, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. Now, th- this is good, right? Did you hear that? Did you catch that? Out of you, Bethlehem, clans of Judah, right? Speaking to the people that Jeremiah is preaching at right now. You, out of you will come a ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, does that remind you of a Bible verse in the New Testament? Maybe the one that we opened up with the worship, uh, the call to worship today? John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now you and I see that. You and I read John 1, 1 through 4, or 4, and we get that. We understand that. But keep in mind, if history is a narrative, history is an account of what God has done in the world... We see the plot twists from the rear view mirror. We see the plot twists as they've already happened. The Israelites, the, the, um, the Jewish nation, did not necessarily foresee Jesus coming in the way that he came. They knew they would get a Messiah, but like in the Old Testament with all of what God says, it is the shadow of what we see in the New Testament as a substance. And so we read John 1 and we completely get it. We absolutely see how I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, how that's Jesus. We get that. But again, we're looking in the rearview mirror. At the time, the Israelites uh, were being desolated. They were being decimated. They were being destroyed. Man, that could have been nice. Um, They were being put down for their sin. But God promised them that he would restore them. He would bring them back. Okay, I'm going to go one more. Ready? To David, right? So you have the history of Israel and you have them desiring a king. And God says, I'm your king. And then, no, we want to be like all the other nations. And then God says, fine, I'll give you what you want, but you're not going to like it. And then they get Saul. And Saul is not so great and does a pretty rough job. And then they get David. And David is a man after God's own heart, but he also does not so great stuff and messes up in some pretty spectacular ways. But God, in his grace and his, his mercy to us, giving, what we, giving us what we don't deserve, God made a promise to David. In 2 Samuel it says that one of his own offspring would sit upon the throne. And that throne of his kingdom would be established forever. 2 Samuel 7 says, Your house and your kingdom, this is God speaking to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But it became very clear after David's death that they thought this promise was in jeopardy. Now, the kings had been destroyed. One of the kings had been captured and they presumed destroyed. We find out at the end of Jeremiah that that king had not actually been destroyed and he is brought back and the bloodline of David will continue on. 
And this is a big deal to the Israelites because they are expecting a king to sit upon their throne forever. However, both thrones, at the time that uh, Jeremiah is writing this, both thrones are destroyed. And so they are seemingly without hope. Now, God promises that he will send a a savior. He will fulfill his promise. But the question is, he's going to fulfill the promise and save them. But what is he going to save them from? We're going to jump back to Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So here again, Paul is in the rear view, looking in the rearview mirror. What are they being saved from? They're being saved from enmity with God. They're being saved from the um, justice of God against his enemies. The judgments of God against his enemies. So this promise is made. He will send. God will fulfill it. And he's made to uh, save them from sin and death. But who is the promise made to? Now you and I do not consider ourselves Jewish. Right? Maybe, maybe some of you. But um, lineage-wise, we, very few of us are Jewish. Yet, we still read, love the Old Testament. We still read and love the Old Testament. Now, here's why. This promise was made directly to Israel and to Judah. But this is also to Christians individually and as the church. Because God's plan of redemption is built upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah, the work is not yet finished. But Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for the sins of the entire world, not just the Jews. The Jews thought it was just them. The Jews thought it was actually about them. Much like us, we we tend to warp the world into a man-centered, my-centered worldview. And the Jews did the exact same thing. Whereas God has a much bigger plan. God's blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So when Christ's death on the cross, Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. And Galatians 3 tells us, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. He said, all nations will be blessed through you. Finally, Galatians 3 finishes up. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, in Christ, believers are counted righteous by faith in the same way that Abraham was. If we are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, then you are a partaker of the blessing of Israel and all nations in the redemptive work of Christ. Believers become spiritual descendants of Abraham's. Believers do not become physical Jews, but we do enjoy the same blessings and privileges of the Jews. God caused his promise to be fulfilled in Christ, and here he reminds the Jewish nation that he, it is something he will do, and that it is something that will happen. So he says, remember, behold, the days are coming when I'm going to fulfill this. I know it's bad, I know it looks really bad, but be reminded, I will fulfill this. And, and, and so he continues on. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Um, this promise is about Jesus. So as we read the Old Testament, as we look through the rearview mirror, we need to make sure that that rearview mirror is in light of what the New Testament tells us about the Old Testament. 
Because again, I I remind you that the Old Testament is in a shadow and the New Testament is the substance. And so when the Old Testament, when they looked forward to the cross, we get to look back and we see very clearly what God was doing. So he says, in those days, I will cause a righteous branch. Now that's not a typo. The word branch is capitalized on purpose. Um, Jeremiah understood that that branch meant a shoot, a root of Jesse. So Jesse was David's father, and David had, they knew that David's throne would be established forever. They didn't know how, and it looked really bleak. But again, God is giving them a reminder that a righteous branch will spring up for David. The, the, the bloodline will continue. Um, what will this, and, and, and so this branch, Isaiah 4 and Isaiah 11 says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So again, he's promising blessing on this nation. He's promising a blessing on a people who have turned from him and have yet to repent of their sins. So we know that Jesus is the branch that that he is talking about. And this branch is given something to do. God's justice and righteousness will be executed by Jesus. He will establish, he will bring to life, he will rise up the, uh, the... execution of justice and righteousness. So God's justice. What is, what is God's justice? This is the wrath of God poured out for the sins of many. Now God's justice will be poured out at the end of time when he ushers some into heaven and the rest into hell. A lot into heaven and some into hell. But his justice was poured out also on Jesus for those who have repented. God's justice is seen on the cross. If we wanted any hope for salvation, there needed to be perfect blood shed to atone for our sin. Atone means to make up for, to satisfy for um, our sin. And then this is Jesus on the cross. We could not do it ourselves, much like Israel and Judah could not do it themselves. We cannot do it ourselves because we sin. Romans 3 says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So again, looking back at that promise, the history of Israel and what God promises entail and who they are entailed to. It is blessing, it is justice, and then it is also righteousness. Righteousness is simply right standing with God. Righteousness means that There is nothing accounted against you in the court of law. So if you were to go before a judge and the judge were to look at you and know that you had sinned, you had broken the law, and he were to uh, issue a punishment for you upon your sin, that would be justice. But we know that because of who God is as God the Father and what Jesus did as on the cross, we do not get that deserved punishment. That deserved punishment still must be poured out, but it is poured out on Jesus and not us. We get Jesus' right standing with God because he offered himself as a sacrifice once for all for the sins of many. And so God is our righteousness. And Jesus, when he goes onto the cross, he is executing God's righteousness. He is executing God's judgment. He is making, uh, sorry, righteousness and, and justice. He is making those things um, whole, making them work in the way that saves us. 
And so, continuing on, verse 16. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Okay, so there's, there's actually a better translation. Let's read this. This is the KJV. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and the name, and this is the name, whereas she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So the Lord in that statement is Jehovah. Jehovah means righteousness. It means perfect standing with God. It means you have not ever broken the law, disappointed God. Um, you have never sinned. And so the, the Bible tells us in Galatians 2, uh, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so I actually get Christ. Christ is our righteousness. Not only is it that he gives us his righteousness, but he is our righteousness. So when you become a Christian, you do not actually cling to perfect orthodox theology. You cling to Jesus because he is our righteousness. Not me completely understanding everything that goes on in that. But I cling to Jesus. He is my righteousness. He is my righteousness. Why do I keep saying that? Because that is our only hope. Because Jesus is our right standing with God. Um, Jesus is our righteousness. And, and when it says, she shall be called, it is referring again to the bride of Christ in the Old Testament, Israel and Judah, in the New Testament, the church. Uh, the, the people who have repented of their sins and been found in right standing with God because of Jesus. Now, um, we are preparing to focus on hope. We are continuing to focus on hope as we see in Christmas in the Old Testament. Um, why did we call it Christmas in the Old Testament? Because they were looking forward to the birth of Christ. They wanted a Savior. They wanted a Savior in not a perfect way, because again, they were in the shadow. But they did still want a Savior. And not only did they want it, but they needed it, just as much as we need a Savior. Now, where's our hope when we are down? I will admit that the Christmas sentiment, the Christmas feeling, is sometimes lacking. It is sometimes a little weak. It is sometimes, it has no substance. It's a sentiment. The world has really co-opted what God intended for good. Now, now we used to be pagans. We used to be worshipers of ourself. But then Jesus saved us, and now we worship him. As we go out into the world, we repeat that pattern. Jesus saved me from being a pagan, and so I start to worship him. But I also start to change things around me that now should be pointed to Christ. Um, the Christmas tree. If it was ever meant to be something pagan, we have now changed it and made it something wonderful. It can mean life. It means life. And we explain that to our kids. We put lights on our tree because Jesus is the light of the world. Things that used to be pagan, God is changing and making to worship himself. Um, this is all through his righteousness. That's why it says, the Lord is our righteousness. Now, in this hope, I want to give you a good definition of hope. So I had to go back 130 years. Nope, that's more than that. 1828. Not good at math. 120, a long time. Hope is a desire of some good, accompanied with at least an expectation of obtaining it, or a belief that it is obtainable. Hope differs from wish and desire in this, that it implies some expectation of obtaining the good that you desire or the possibility of possessing it. We have hope 
just as much as the Jews in the Old Testament have hope, but only in God's righteousness. I can try as hard as I want to not sin, but it still happens. I can, I, and, and please, in the, in the Holy Spirit, we should try to not sin. We should want to not sin, but it still happens. And that's a good reminder that we are, my, that my hope is not in my effort to not sin. My hope is in the fact that Jesus is my righteousness. Jehovah. Jesus is my right standing with God. When I die, may it be a long time from now, please. When I die, my only hope will be Jesus. God will look at Christians and give them what is due Jesus, not what is due us. Hope is something real. In prison, it's obvious um, as a, it's as obvious as a chain, who has hope and who does not. As easily as you can see someone with chains on their hands, on their wrists, on their feet, you can easily see those chains as people who have hope and those who do not. So, why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, because hope is real. Hope is something that should be spread to the world. We should tell people. We should go tell it on a mountain. Right? That's easier here than in, like, Nebraska. Hope is something real. Now hope also does this. Hope changes direction. Because God uses belief to transform. Specifically, belief in the gospel. When we hope in Jesus, our momentary direction is changed. Hope and belief in other things other than Jesus, other than God, other than our justifier, do transform us. But they transform us into our own carnal, deathly, self-worshipping selves. They direct us away from the goodness, truth, and beauty of the gospel. Hope and belief change our direction. Without a hope in Christ, without a gospel hope in His righteousness and not my own, not your own righteousness, not your own ability to do good, we have no hope in our ability to do good. It is a false hope. It is a lie. It's fake news. Without a hope in the true gospel, we are headed for disaster. In the same way the train headed towards a ravine is headed to disaster. The train needs a bridge. Hope is our bridge. Hope in Jesus, in what he has done, and not in what we have done. Today is a hopeful day. We begin a season of, of, of Christmas. Their hope in the Old Testament was not in obeying the law, and neither is ours. I'll close with two thoughts as we prepare uh, for communion. When you celebrate Christ's birth this year, we celebrate the birth of, of, of Christ. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ. And we are able to do this because we have seen what his rule has accomplished in the world. Jesus told Thomas once that there was a blessing for those who would believe without having seen the risen Christ as Thomas had. On this principle, we place in, history, in our place in history, it gives us access to a greater blessing because we have not seen Christ with our eyes. Sorry, this is, again, is from a book by a guy named Pastor Wilson. It's called God Rest You Mary. We, on this principle, we place hope, our hope in Christ. We live at a point in history where we cannot see Christ like Thomas did. But Thomas went back and said, and, and, and Jesus had a discussion with him. And Jesus ends up saying, those at the time of Christ had not yet seen what his rule would do in history as we have. 
And so they are more greatly blessed looking toward the future. The same way that we will be blessed by looking forward to what Christ has yet to do in the world. Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We take this literally. We cannot imagine the goodness God has in store for us. We cannot imagine what it means to have a justifier, to have righteousness in Christ and not in myself. We taste it, but we haven't fully eaten the whole cake. Christ is a great gift giver. God the Father knows how to give good gifts. That's why we give gifts at Christmas. We should give good gifts so that we may be like Christ. We may learn to sacrifice. We may learn to save. We may learn to repent and receive his forgiveness. And that is our call for Christmas this year. To repent of our own self-righteousness. Of relying on our own desire, our own ability and lack of ability to become like Christ. And really to, tr- to follow him and trust him to transform us. Not only now, but what he is doing in the future. Christmas is a light to the world. Celebrate it with vigor. If you are a believer, we would invite you to come take communion up here today um, as we sing. This is the body that has been broken on our behalf, and this is the blood that was shed so that ours does not have to be. I will pray, and then we will feast and enjoy what God has started with Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, you... um, You make big promises, and and oftentimes I find them very hard to believe because they they are so big. You told us that there is goodness ahead for us that we have not yet imagined. You told us that you justified us through Jesus' work. That is um, something that is amazing. That is something that we cannot seek to find hope in on our own. Father, I know that Christmas has different means different things for different people. I know that some people have suffered loss during Christmas. A lot of people have suffered pain. I ask that you would bring healing. I ask that you would remind us, um, not to be hokey, but what the true meaning of Christmas is. Uh, That you considered yourself equal with God and became man to earn our righteousness. To be our righteousness so that we do not have to. Father, we repent of our sin and place our hope only in that. You're a good king. Amen.